Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Coming up on today's show, the James Webb Space Telescope has arrived on location and is now setting up and getting ready to go to work. Also, Alberta's child vaccination rate is not good. In fact, it's the lowest in the country. And inflation, inflation, inflation. We're hearing a lot about it. Where's it coming from? What does it mean? How does it affect us? All right, switching gears. Uh, The James Webb Space Telescope. We talked about it. We've kept you updated on its progression um, big news yesterday as it arrived in its final location, which I believe is a million and a half kilometers from Earth. This thing's way, way out there. It is so cool. So we're going to chat now with someone who um, is extremely excited about this. We are going to chat now with Gregory R. Sivakov, who is an associate professor in the University of Alberta Department of Physics. And he joins us now. Gregory, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So now, first of all, uh, you've got uh, personal and professional interest in this, right? I mean, you, you'll actually be one of the scientists that's using the information that this telescope gets back. You'll be using the telescope. Absolutely. I won't be able to control the telescope, but I'll be able to get the data for this. We're uh, approved for a couple of projects. Uh, it's really a, a great time. Um, just tell us, so the arrival of the space telescope, was I right, a million and a half kilometers away? Yeah, 1.5 uh, million kilometers away. Unbelievable. Quite a distance. Now, just the fact that it got there, it arrived where it's supposed to, and the fact that all of the different components, the heat shields and the mirror array and all that stuff worked, how amazing is that to you? Because it blows my mind. Well, I'll be honest. I think astronomers all over the world have been sitting on pins and needles waiting for all these things to progress the way that we hoped they would. This was, in my opinion, one of the more complex deployments uh, astronomy has ever seen. And just seeing it all unfold and having it not just unfold, but unfold so well has been, you know, Jaw-dropping. Yeah, it really is. It's it's amazing. Um, now, what's the timeline? Now that it's up there and now that it's it's worked perfectly so far, when do you anticipate you might be able to see some data? So we have several months ahead of us where the telescope is really going to be going through a, a shakedown. We're going to be trying to get everything uh, calibrated as well as we can. This is sort of the crucial thing so that the uh, first images that we present to the public actually showed the true capacity of JWST. And we think that we'll be starting that in, um, you know, in about six weeks. We'll be sort of getting towards that step. And then we'll be starting to take some of these um, images for what astronomers like to call first light, where we sort of reveal the first images to the public uh, with an eye towards that, um, maybe in May. And then after that, uh, we should slowly begin the first stages of getting data. My project. Um, 
we don't actually know when they're going to be uh, precisely scheduled, but basically we're looking at data anywhere probably from six months to a, a year from now. Okay. Now, in, in reading what you're going to be working on, um, I've never heard of this before. To me, immediately I thought of zombie stars. Would that be a fair way of – just describe us to us what your work is, is centered around here. Sure. So most of my work, I like to call that – what I observe are the stellar undead. And so I call these the stellar dead because these are dead stars that are reinvigorated as they feed on the atmospheres of very nearby living stars. So these dead stars are things like black holes, which we've all heard about, uh, neutron stars, which are the mass of the Earth, but the, sorry, the mass of the sun, but the size of Edmonton or Calgary, the um, white dwarfs, which are the mass of the sun, but the size of the Earth, these very compact stars have lived their life. And as they eat material uh, from a nearby star, we can start seeing them again in a sort of a whole new life. I, can, I have entire talks where I talk about the zombies, werewolves, and vampires among them. It's so cool. Now, how does this telescope work into what you do? How will it change your work? So there, there, there's a couple of aspects. This telescope is following on from the Hubble Space Telescope. And the Hubble Space Telescope was best suited for observing light, uh, observing the electromagnetic spectrum in light that we typically see as human beings. James Webb Space Telescope is more focused on the near infrared. This is light that is redder than red, um, much longer wavelengths, much lower uh, frequencies and lower energies. And this type of uh, uh, stuff for what I uh, study is very good because it turns out that, for instance, black holes, when they're eating a nearby star, mm -hmm. they also burp out material. And in these burps, you can see these very brightly in near-infrared and radio. And the near-infrared is actually uh, probing the spot of these burps that is closest to the black hole. So it, it's uh, very critical that we have a, a telescope like James Webb around. Now, I'm getting um, questions from my listeners, and every time we talk about James Webb, same thing comes up. Big Bang, Big Bang, Big Bang. Are we going to see the Big Bang? Are we going to be able to discover where the Big Bang was? Like, how do you even know where to point the telescope? How much is the Big Bang fitting into what's going on with James Webb Space Telescope? So, so James Webb is very much focused uh, on the early parts of the universe's evolution, but the Big Bang itself is actually something that um, is, is not as well suited for studying with James Webb. We tend to study more uh, uh, the Big Bang with things at larger uh, wavelengths in the microwave regime. Um, and the thing about for the Big Bang is it happened everywhere. It's not like a where. Okay. And when we observe the Big Bang, what we do is we actually observe the entire sky around us and we look at the structure of that for understanding things like the Big Bang. Uh, what we're really interested most in James Webb is understanding sort of things like how exactly the very first stars formed and how the first galaxies formed. So this is in the galaxy, uh, sorry, the universe's perspective. This is very much its uh, its uh, first uh, early infancy. So not quite the birth, but you know. Uh, very young in the universe. Okay, I'm going to ask a question here. It's probably going to sound really dumb to somebody with a brain like yours. But looking back, looking through this telescope, and I've, I think I've wrapped my head around that some of the light that we'll be seeing um, is coming from things that don't exist anymore. You're actually looking back through time, right? 
Yep. So, so uh, and this is not a dumb question at all. This is something that's very hard for all of us to wrap our head around. <laughs> but I'm wondering, so is it almost like you're you're watching a movie? Then you're sort of seeing a chunk of time play out. Like it's not just a snapshot. Is it possible to see, you know, a, a period of time that actually occurred billions of years ago? So absolutely, and all depends on how far back we're looking. What the issue is that light. It takes a certain time for it to reach us. So the light that we see on Earth was emitted by the sun about eight minutes ago. So that light already is a small little snapshot of the universe a little bit younger. Uh, depending on what you're observing with James Webb, you're going back farther and farther and farther. Yeah. And some of the things we're looking at are 10 billion years old, potentially, with, uh, and older even, with James Webb Space Telescope. Unreal. Just unreal stuff. Um, Gregory, I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, we'll be following this closely, and hopefully we'll chat again. Absolutely. be my pleasure. Thank you very much, sir. That is Gregory R. Sivikov, one of the researchers who will be using this James Webb, James Webb Telescope, associate professor in the University of Alberta Department of Physics. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Alberta. Uh, like everywhere else, has opened up vaccination to kids age 5 to 11. And um, last time I saw, the last numbers that I saw said about 42% roughly, just slightly over 42%, had uh, taken the government up on their offer. Um, a situation that the opposition is calling on the government to address. It is the lowest level of um, child vaccination in the country. Um, Rachel Notley, leader of the opposition, joins us now. Um, Ms. Notley, thanks for your time today. Appreciate you joining us. Oh, good morning. It's glad I'm glad to be here. Now, obviously, the rate is very low in Alberta, and you and you know, indeed, some Alberta school boards have both have all said, you know what, we need to have school vaccination clinics. That's the way to solve this problem. That's what you're asking for, right? Mm-hmm. That's right, and that's what we've been calling for uh, for for some time now. And uh, it would basically mirror what we do with other vaccinations in our schools. Uh, There's lots of other types of vaccinations that are delivered in the school. They are not mandatory. Of course, parents still can have to uh, consent for it to happen. But what it does is it addresses the real problem that exists right now with respect to access for uh, vaccinations for kids between 5 and 11. We asked, of course, the health minister to join us. He sent us a statement. And in the statement, he says, you know what, we did this. We did this with junior and high school. junior and senior high school students back uh, earlier when they were eligible to be vaccinated and mm-hmm. and nobody showed up. We had to shut down the majority of those clinics. We had 4,000 kids that picked up on it. There was no interest. 
Yeah, no, that's a really bogus and, and disingenuous argument. They did it at the end of the school year, in the middle, uh, in, in, a, in between waves, and and they did it uh, very haphazardly uh, in a in a very disorganized way. Every other province, or almost every other province, has done it in schools. It has made a, a significant difference. Uh, I actually have quite a level of faith in Albertans and the people who work in our schools in terms of being able to to uh, organize. Uh, in-school clinics because, of course, we have in-school clinics, as I've said, for other vaccinations, and uh, and and we're a reasonably together group of humans. So um, we can do it if we actually set it up to succeed rather than to create a talking point around failing. The problem is, is that this UCP government, for almost unfathomable reasons, uh, is 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 trying to avoid this. But the problem is with that is that we know uh, right now with this uh, version of COVID, we've got more uh, kids being admitted to hospital than ever before. And the number, the, the ratio between those who are vaccinated and not vaccinated is about tenfold. So it's over 10 times as many kids who are in the hospital with COVID now are kids without vaccines. So we just want to make sure that we do everything we can uh, to give parents the chance to keep their kids safe. Understandable. Absolutely. The question I have, though, is when we even before the vaccines came out and we saw polling, the government says 30 to 40 percent of Alberta parents said they would get their kids vaccinated. I saw another poll Mm -hmm. that had it up to to 46 percent, still extremely low, lower than anywhere else in the country. Alberta parents said they were in no rush to have their children vaccinated. So access aside school vaccination clinics, do you think realistically you'd get it beyond 43% at this point when only 46% said they were eager to do it anyhow? You sure can, because we've seen a lot of different issues throughout COVID where uh, people's opinions have changed over time uh, as a result of education and and uh, learning more about the 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 you know the threats and the the facts that that are that we are confronted with as a result of this um, uh, of this virus. And so we've seen public opinion uh, uh, evolve and and change quite considerably on a number of different fronts when it comes to COVID. As well, we've seen vaccination rates with education jump tremendously. You may recall how the Premier attacked uh, Northeast Calgary earlier on, claiming that they were all opposed to vaccinations. And and, uh, and then what ended up happening was there was community-based education and outreach around it, such that Northeast Calgary now has the highest rate of vaccination uh, anywhere in Alberta and in many parts of the country. So it was actually a, a clear example of how with with thoughtful uh, education and outreach and access, you can change both the opinions and the ultimate outcome. Um, the other response that we received from the government was one of the considerations that they're very mindful of in not putting this in schools is they've been told um, through their research that parents want to be there. Parents want to be mm-hmm. part of this experience with their children, especially in this age group of 5 to 11, Um, And that is why they've decided to open up the access to weekends and evenings at public health clinics and uh, make Mm -hmm. it accessible that way just to make sure the parents can be part of the process. First of all, they haven't made it accessible. I've actually heard um, UCP MLAs uh, spreading this information about how it's possible to get those vaccinations in pharmacies. It's not. Uh, for many people around the province, they have to, they're looking at driving hours to get their kids uh, to a, a, a clinic, an HS clinic. Okay, and just to clarify, the, the province says in communities where they don't have the large vaccination centers, you can go to mm-hmm. a pharmacy. You're saying that's not true from what you've heard? No. 
it, it's not true. Um, and so you have to go to the clinics. That's the only place where you can get them. And, and so it's not accessible. Also, though, we see schools offering vaccine clinics right now, like over the last two or three weeks, uh, schools have been delivering different kinds of vaccines to kids um, without this issue of parental presence being a problem. Now, that being said, the other part of it is, is there is nothing saying parents cannot come to the school to be there with their kids when they're getting the vaccination. So again, it's a, it's a, it's a fake barrier. Um, If that's an issue, to be fair, to be, that would be a barrier to a lot of parents who would rather go on the weekend or the kids so they don't have to miss school. I would think it could be a barrier for some parents. It could be, and and if that is really an issue, then they can go that way. But then for other parents where access is the issue, maybe they can make yeah. it uh, during the, the day at, at the schools. But again, as I say, this idea is not uh, blocking the delivery of other vaccines in schools right now as we speak. So it doesn't make sense. What is it about this particular vaccine uh, that, that requires parents to be there where other vaccines do not? So it's it's not a logical argument. Well, I hear what you're saying. I do. But to play Mm -hmm. devil's advocate, this vaccine is not like any other vaccine. We haven't seen this kind of resistance, um, hesitancy, pushback against a vaccine in my lifetime like Mm -hmm. we have around this one. Well, and and that's true. And I I do truly wish that we had a government that would uh, be a lot uh, more uh, uh, transparent with respect to the science and the issues around it instead of fanning the flames of of, uh, vaccine hesitancy, which many, many members of the UCP caucus are doing right now in a way that is quite alarming and, and very much contradictory to the proven science. But again, as I say, even on this issue of parental presence, Uh, There are, again, we don't know that that's the primary reason why some parents wouldn't want to be there. There are solutions to that. We've seen it work in other provinces, and that's why other provinces are doing a better job than Alberta is keeping our kids safe. And that's not a record that we should be uh, particular that we should be defending in this problem. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. The the, the next lowest province is BC, and they're almost 10% uh, higher up on the list than we are. So we are lagging greatly behind uh, the rest of the provinces. I mean, you look at the Maritimes, mm-hmm. they're up around 75-80% in some cases. So mm-hmm. uh, we mm-hmm. definitely uh, are, are far behind. Um, Ms. Notley, thanks so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Okay, it was a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks so much. You bet. That's Rachel Notley, uh, leader of the opposition in the province of Alberta. Right now, though, we're going to have a discussion about something that's been on the minds of many. It's something we've talked about on the show a lot. Inflation. It, It affects all of us. That's the thing about inflation. We all, in one way or another, see the inevitable outcome of it. But how much do we really know about it? There's a lot of people that have a lot of different... um Fingers pointed at this, that, and the other thing as the reason we're in this inflationary period and what we need to do to fix it. But let's do an inflation 101, if you will, and just get a crash course in what we're talking about, why we got here, and what the situation is. And to do that with us, we have Trevor Toom, who is an associate professor at the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary. Trevor, thanks for uh, spending some time with us this morning. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Great to be here. So inflation, I mean, it's something we all know about. We're, we're seeing levels haven't seen in like 30 years, close to 5% in Canada. It's definitely a real thing right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what inflation basically is, is just an average of price changes across a little over a thousand items that stats can tracks every month. And so we, we are indeed seeing higher rates of inflation, not just overall, but 
also across a broader range of products than uh, we usually do. But the, the big driver, it turns out, comes down really just to gasoline and home prices. And absent that, we're pretty normal. Okay, so it's that simple because, I mean, uh, I, every time we talk about it, I have people that tell me it's because Justin Trudeau spent too much money on the pandemic. I have people that tell me it's the carbon tax. I have people that tell me it's supply chains. I mean, there's no list or shortage of reasons as to why we're in this spot. You say it's that simple, just two reasons? It's not saying that the other reasons are not contributing factors, but we do need to keep in mind that some things can contribute small amounts and other things can contribute large amounts. Let's take the carbon tax, for example. That increased last year by a little over two cents per liter. Uh, Not nothing for sure, but that's just a couple percent change in overall gasoline prices, adding just fractions of a point to the CPI, whereas gasoline prices increasing as much as they have, basically 35 cents a liter over the past year, is almost entirely due to global oil prices rising. So carbon tax is doing a little bit, but the big uh, big factor is just world oil prices, which Canada's federal government really has nothing to, to do with. And is that sort of a almost a a compound problem, Trevor, when you talk about gas prices, because sure, you know, I got gas this morning and I was, holy, it's way up. And, it, and so it costs me more money. Um, but it sort of, it affects almost everything in a, in a way, right? Because everything's transported and it involves gasoline. That's, that's absolutely right. It is one of these inputs into the production of almost everything. And if not gasoline, then other types of energy like natural gas, which are used to to heat a lot of space, not just our homes, but also a commercial space, factory floors, manufacturing, and so on. So energy matters a lot for CPI, but it is driven, the ups and downs are largely driven by these world developments. Uh, oil prices being what they are has made energy more expensive, and that's a huge component of the current high rate of inflation. The most important driver of any item that we track is is right there, just gasoline. And when you add in other energy, it's 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 kind of crystal clear that yeah. the reason we have this nearly five percent rate is really that, and then plus home prices. Yeah, and the other component is home prices. How does I mean? How I mean, we we all don't buy homes? I guess it's just sort of an average across the country, right? It's sort of this is what's happening on an average. Exactly. These are national average numbers. That's pretty relevant here for Alberta, because at least in Calgary and, and in Edmonton as well, home prices have been pretty flat for for some time now, whereas in Vancouver and Toronto, they are just skyrocketing, yeah. uh, pulling that national average way up. And that matters for inflation, not because homes are expensive to buy, uh, but what StatsCan does is they try to guess at how much of our homes are wearing out. That's the cost, the, the depreciation cost that they try and measure. And they just mechanically say, oh, 1.5% of home values uh, depreciate each year. So when home prices rise as much as they have, that depreciation component drives a lot of CPI, even though it's not something that anyone actually buys. It's like this imputed, imaginary, non-cash item in the CPI and this is the first time we've ever seen it as important as it is. Yeah, and it has huge influence, at least this time, hey? That's right. Almost a full percentage point contributing to that 4.8% overall inflation rate. So home prices through depreciation plus gasoline and energy, 
that's basically the whole ballgame for why inflation is above normal. Really? So if you take those two components out of this basket of, like you say, more than a thousand different things that we track, we're not seeing that much of an increase? That's right. We're on the higher end of the Bank of Canada's target range, so we'd get about 2.8 if we subtract the depreciation plus the energy. Uh, And so that's above our target of 2%, but it's within that target range. That's not to say that we shouldn't you know, nudge things or think about policy gradually, but it's not the kind of uh, really unprecedented inflation situation that I think many are are interpreting it to be. So when we hear about inflation, and I know a lot of people out there are worried about inflation and they're worried about the cost of living, are maybe, mm-hmm. maybe they're not being as affected as badly? I mean, if it, it, it's not a situation where inflation isn't going to impact my household or your household as much as we're being told? No, I wouldn't conclude that. I'd say that there's there's people in different circumstances. Some uh, drive uh, a lot. You know, maybe yeah, they live yeah. further out of the downtown core. Some take public transit. So depending on what you buy as an individual, you're exposed in different ways. So a household that does purchase a lot of gasoline, and I'm thinking of maybe rural areas in particular, they are absolutely hit by high gasoline prices. So I don't want to take away from anyone who is expressing a personal um, concern about affordability. That's very real. But I don't think that's captured by that headline number of inflation that many are pointing to. So I think the conversation needs to be a little more nuanced, where... Uh, we point to specific items where there might be concern and then ask what policymakers can do. So I think people who live in Vancouver and Toronto, yeah, I think they ought to be um, asking municipal governments primarily to think about whether housing supply can be increased, increased density, for example. But that's not the same kind of concern that we hear in Calgary or Edmonton. Yeah, they're, they're different situations. And I guess, is there a way that you can assess that? You know, wh- well, where's the inflationary pressure on me? There is, actually, and this is really interesting, I think, to Seth Can's credit, they've put out a web page, and if you just go onto Google and search Personal Inflation Calculator Canada, then this will be the number one hit, and you kind of type in what your monthly spending is, and it'll tell you what your household's personal inflation rate is. Mine, personally, it looks like it's a little higher than average, 5.1%, and so everybody's different. There's a huge range, and so I think... Getting to know how inflation is calculated and what it means for you individually, that calculator is quite helpful. Yeah, that's interesting. Hey, a good question from a listener here, um, Trevor, and I, I don't know if you have the answer, but we're talking about Canada's inflationary rate, but we know in the U.S. it's even higher than here. And, and in other countries, I mean, I think we're actually a little bit below G20 and G G7 rates right now. So um, right. are they are they seeing the same situation that we are? Yeah, same contributing factors? Absolutely. So the United States is actually at 7% inflation. And if you look across developed economies as a whole, uh, what are called the OECD countries, the average is 6%. So, uh, so Canada's pretty, um, pretty high, but a little bit below average relative to those countries. And these countries are all seeing the same pressures that Canada's seeing. So oil prices being high, doesn't matter what country uh, you are, that's going to factor into energy prices. And that's a big driver in, in the United States and other developed economies. And home prices, they're rising across the developed world. So again, Canada is not unique there. And so inflation being elevated, uh, we're seeing it everywhere, and we're seeing the same driver. Um, 
just if I can, when does this end? What what ends? I mean, I know the bank, uh, central banks are talking about increasing rates. I mean, that's the typical lever that they pull. What do you think? Well, I think we saw the Bank of Canada this morning decide to maintain uh, their their policy rate. They are projecting inflation to get back to normal by the end of this year. And I would concur because it's hard to see how home prices rise another 25% or so this year. And so I think what we've seen over the last little while, uh, I mean, I could be wrong, but it'd be really hard to see that, that pace of increase continue. And then gasoline prices, markets aren't expecting oil prices to continue to rise. And so that contributing factor is going to dissipate. And once those two items go away, then we right, get, get right back uh, to that uh, normal range, still the upper end of the normal range, but normal nonetheless. Interesting. Okay. Great stuff. Thanks so much, Trevor. Really appreciate your time. You bet. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us, sir. That is Trevor Toom. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.